My name is Shane Lewis, and you are listening to Forever on My Mind, Blues Songwriting in the 1960s, an independent study podcast from the College of Worcester. Before this episode starts, I wanted to give a trigger warning that this episode contains stories of an abusive childhood. These parts are from about 2 minutes and 50 seconds to about 4 minutes and 20 seconds. Thank you. One day during a Christmas break in college, I was listening to one of my favorite bands of all time, the band Swans from New York City. Forming in the early 1980s, their sound has greatly evolved over the years with harsh industrial rock, gothic and folk rock, and more recently lengthy experimental tracks that last upward of 30 minutes. They're one of my favorite bands to listen to, especially when studying or doing menial tasks. While I was listening to their 2014 album To Be Kind, I noticed something about one of the tracks in its title. The second track of the album is titled, quote, Just a Little Boy, in parentheses, for Chester Burnett. After listening to this 12-minute monstrosity, I was astounded. The frontman Michael Jarrah's vocals are absolutely harrowing, and the terrifying, ambient, bluesy steel guitar performed by Christoph Hahn fits the atmosphere perfectly. After listening to this track, I wanted to know desperately, who is this Chester Burnett that the band has dedicated this song to? After looking up the name, my eyes lit up and realized that Chester Burnett was the name of an old blues musician who was famous in the 1960s, who I had heard about before. To the rest of the world, however, this man was more famously known simply as Howlin' Wolf. Helen Wolf, birth name Chester Arthur Burnett, was born in White Station, Mississippi on Friday, June 10, 1910. He was named after the 21st President of the United States, Chester A. Arthur, but his status and living situation at the time could not have been more opposite than his namesake. Born into a sharecropping family, he had an uneasy relationship with his mother and father from the first moment that he could remember. His father was a full-time sharecropper and rarely ever saw his own son. At home, Young Burnett was a troublemaker. Whenever he got in trouble, he would run away and his family would howl after him as he would try to escape his inevitable punishment. His adopting of the name Howlin' Wolf would be a way of him coping with and almost embodying his rough upbringing into his musical persona. Later on, he would declare that, quote, I have always been the wolf. Eventually, his father left the family all of a sudden, and Wolf was left to be raised by his mother alone. Wolf's musical interests stemmed from his mother, who was extremely religious and sang in the church. One day, when he was still a kid, his mother simply kicked him out of the house. There were many possible reasons for this, from his mother being ashamed of being part Choctaw and her son having darker skin than her, to simply being fed up with him not wanting to work in the sharecropping fields. Either way, Wolf was sent into the world on his own, only to end up in yet another abusive household. For the rest of his childhood, Wolf would be raised by his great uncle, Will Young, who was absolutely merciless towards him. 
Young would physically and verbally harass him constantly for not working enough on the sharecropping fields. During his times alone in the field, Wolf would sing the songs he learned from his mother. From this very early age, music was a coping mechanism for dealing with the harsh realities at the time. He would sing the blues to himself whenever he had a free moment alone, and started learning to play the harmonica at a young age. Frequently, Wolf would run away from home days at a time with no food and barely any clothes. One day at the age of 13, Wolf ran away for what he hoped would be the last time he ever saw his family again. Wolf relocated deep into the Mississippi Delta, where he stayed with an Italian family that took him in. During this time, he continued working within the sharecropping system and started to take music seriously. Much like Sun House, one of Helen Wolf's first encounters with the blues was meeting famous blues musician Charlie Patton in the 1930s. Upon meeting him, Wolf was inspired to take up the guitar on his own. What fascinated the young Wolf was not just the music that Patton played, but his eccentric showmanship. Patton did not simply play a song quietly in the corner. He would terrorize his guitar strings, painfully shriek harrowing lyrics, and even throw his guitar around like a true rock star. It was seeing Charlie Patton make a show out of his musical entertainment that truly drew Wolf into the blues, and the thrill of entertaining a crowd. Wolf learned enough guitar from Patton to start performing in front of people and quickly encompassed himself within the Mississippi Delta blues music scene. Beyond just Patton, Wolf started to listen and play with other popular blues acts such as the Mississippi Sheiks, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Ma Rainey, and Jimmy Rogers. At this time, the young guitarist was trying out many different names, but ended up finally settling with Howlin' Wolf. Not only did this stem from his childhood nickname, but also from how he acted on stage and how his audience perceived him. Wolf was tall, loud, aggressive, and presented an almost threatening presence toward his audience. Wolf was particularly unique for his loud, scratchy, booming, and terrifying voice which he used to sing passionate Delta Blues classics. He would even crawl around and get right into his audience's faces just to remind them of who he was. By this time, Wolf was fully experiencing and embracing the blues lifestyle. Unlike his contemporary Sunhouse, there was no shame or struggle attached to the way he wanted to live his life. As described by his biographers James Segrest and Mark Hoffman, quote, Wolf really did feel that he'd sold his soul to the devil. When the U.S. joined World War II in 1941, the 30-year-old musician was drafted into the army as a cook, but was soon discharged in 1943 from the amount of stress and anxiety that the discipline of the army caused him. The only thing of worth that Wolf experienced during his time in the service was that this was the first time in his life that he had seen other parts of the United States outside of the Deep South, including Chicago, which at this time he had no idea how important this city would be to his career. By 1948, Helen Wolf was struggling to find work within the sharecropping system, so he and his wife moved to West Memphis, Tennessee. Up to this point, Wolf only performed the blues alone, but this would quickly change with his move. Electric guitars and full bands were becoming more and more common for the blues at this time, and Wolf wanted nothing more than to adapt to these changing times within the world of the blues. Helen Wolf's main goal was to do as much as he could to remain relevant to the music world and his audience. And so, in 1948, he did one of the biggest steps of his career. He started his first band.
West Memphis was good for Wolf, because the music scene was as vibrant and active as the Delta, if not more. Not only did West Memphis inspire him to start a band, but Wolf also started to write his own songs. Much like Sunhouse, Wolf did not know how to properly read or write for most of his life, so he wrote in a similar manner to House, where he adapted and changed songs which he already knew in order to express his emotions. Wolf's band members would come and go during this time, but he himself always remained an integral part of his performance. He ruled over his band with an iron fist, and had extremely high standards that at times seemed impossible. There was even an instance where Wolf started taking music lessons, which he had never properly had at this point, and after his first lesson, threatened to fire his entire band if they didn't keep up with him. He always showed up to venues on time, took practice and songwriting seriously, and lost himself in every performance. This rigorous treatment and an attitude that he adopted would soon pay off, when in 1949, he and his band secured a spot on the West Memphis radio station KWEM. His show was extremely popular in the Memphis area, and by 1951, Wolf was already in conversation with producers to start recording and releasing singles. Sam Phillips, the founder of the legendary Sun Records, who signed huge acts from the 1950s such as Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis, took notice of Wolf's radio show in 1951. Like many others at this time, Phillips was drawn to Wolf's booming voice and extremely heavy electric sound. As soon as he could, Phillips got Wolf into the studio with his band and a few studio musicians. The first two tracks Wolf ever recorded were the singles How Many More Years and Moanin' at Midnight, which today are two of his most famous songs. These were released in September of 1951 and were an immediate hit. So much so that Wolf's music was catching the attention of two different families that wished to make money off of his talent, the Chess Brothers and the Bahari Brothers. Wolf would end up accidentally signing a contract with both brothers. After legal disputes between the two families were resolved, Wolf started recording singles for the Baharis, but quickly stuck with just the Chess Brothers. Compared to the Baharis from LA, Leonard and Phil Chess both knew at Wolf's audience well in Chicago and who to sell his records to. In 1951 and 52, Wolf remained in Memphis and recorded several singles during this time with Sam Phillips. After these singles sold extremely well in Chicago, the Chess Brothers pressured Wolf to leave Memphis and record and perform in Chicago. And so, in the winter of 1952, Wolf left his band and his family behind and drove up north alone to the Windy City. Upon arriving, Wolf did what he did best and started forming yet another band and diving into a brand new music scene. He initially stayed his first couple of days in the city with his soon-to-be-sworn rival, Muddy Waters. Muddy had a similar story to Wolf, in that he spent his early music years in the Delta and started experimenting with electric blues by the 1950s. At this time, he was quite prominent in the Chicago scene, and he started to show Wolf around. Despite their similarities, Wolf and Muddy's performances could not have been more different. Wolf was known for his electric and explosive showmanship, whereas Muddy at times would not even be present on stage while his band was performing. Wolf had an eccentric performing style. He also took the music business seriously, and he quickly became one of the biggest stars in Chicago. There was even a moment in 1955 when Helen Wolf gave advice to a young and up-and-coming musician by the name of James Brown, warning him that if he messed with women too much during his performances, that he would end up getting killed. From 1954 until the end of the 1960s, Wolf consistently recorded singles for the Chess Brothers in Chicago. This first session in 1954 was extremely important to Wolf's career, as he would meet one of his greatest collaborators and songwriting partners, Willie Dixon. Up until this point, nearly every song that was recorded by Hal and Wolf was credited to him for songwriting. 
However, by this year, Wolf started recording songs that were written by Willie Dixon, the first of which being his single, Evil. Initially, Wolf hated working with Dixon because he felt that his own leadership and persona was being overshadowed. However, Wolf soon appreciated Dixon's unique songwriting and contributions to his own band and persona. The 1960s proved to be a turning point for Helen Wolf's career. To black Americans in Chicago and parts of the South, he was a blues pop star. But with the cultural boom that occurred in the 1960s, Wolf would grow even more in popularity, especially with younger white audiences. Just before this boom, Chess Records released his first album, Moanin' in the Moonlight, in 1959. The album was a compilation of recordings from the Sam Phillips days up to that point, and contained some of his most well-known songs. The album was a hit, and perfectly timed for this boost in popularity. In 1962, an album titled simply Howlin' Wolf was also released by Chess Records, with most of the singles written by Willie Dixon. Chess Records released even more albums and singles in the 1960s than the previous decade in order to satisfy this blues market. Due to his increased popularity, Howlin' Wolf found himself constantly moving from one thing to the next. When he was not recording singles for the Chess Brothers, he was playing festivals or doing television broadcasts. Wolf played the American Folk Blues Festival in 1964 in Europe, and in May of 1965, he was introduced by the Rolling Stones on the Shindig television broadcast. This was a huge deal, as the Rolling Stones not only acknowledged one of their influences, but this also introduced Wolf to even more European audiences. It was during the filming of this special that Wolf had his reunion with his friend, Son House. In many ways, House and Wolf most likely related to this strange cultural boom they were both in the middle of. However, the main difference between House and Wolf's careers was that Wolf was prepared, if not made, for the 1960s rock star status. He already had experience being a pop star spanning several decades among black Americans in the Delta, Memphis, and Chicago. For the 1960s, it was an easy transition for him to become an even more popular rock star with an even bigger audience. And Wolf did not crack from the usual pressures that contemporary rock stars faced in the 1960s. He stood strong and grounded the entire time, and like all of his career, was not afraid to show the world who he was. The story of Howlin' Wolf's songwriting and emotional expression can be seen from the various singles and albums that he released from the early 1950s up to the 1960s. Not only did his extreme performances draw audiences in, but also the deep, dark, and depressing subject matter within his songs. Whether they were written by Willie Dixon, himself, or the two together, Howlin' Wolf's discography represents a fascinating side of the blues in the 1960s. These songs musically were made for dancing and losing yourself to, yet lyrically they were some of the darkest confessions one heard from a human being. Helen Wolf's discography consisted of many songs that directly spoke to his experiences and emotional expression. Because he did not know how to read or write most of his life, much like Sunhouse, Wolf took old songs that he knew or heard and modified them constantly throughout his career. I will be looking at a select few of his most famous songs that express a wide range of emotions and experiences. I will first look at some of Wolf's early songs that became popular in the 1960s and which reflected his early life. 
Next, I will be highlighting some of the songs he wrote with Willie Dixon and explore their songwriting quote-unquote friendship. And finally, I will be highlighting a few songs that reflect life in the 1960s for Wolf, especially in relation to his time in Chicago. The songs Moanin' at Midnight and How Many More Years were his first singles ever released, which were recorded with Sam Phillips in 1951, and also opened his first compilation album, Moanin' in the Moonlight. Both are heavy, loud, and crushing. Moanin' at Midnight opens with Wolf's hypnotic, ethereal howling that he was famous for, and only consists of two verses. In a paranoid tone, Wolf cries out that, quote, somebody is knocking on his door, and that he is, quote, so worried and don't know where to go. This idea of someone being after him and he has no place he feels he's safe is a common theme within his songwriting. It most likely stems from his childhood and early teen years in the Delta, where he truly was on the run and at times did not have a safe place to go. In How Many More Years, Wolf shouts out and questions how many more years a woman will dog him around or incessantly follow him around. He even declares that he, quote, would rather be dead sleeping six feet in the ground rather than deal with her actions towards him. This is not an expression of sorrow at all, but rather a harsh and unapologetic cry of frustration and desperation. Wolf is genuinely asking the person whom he loves in this song, how much longer will you keep doing this to me? The song does not mourn this relationship at all, and instead, Wolf expresses raw and unabashed frustration with brutal imagery. Also on the Monin in the Moonlight album is most likely his most autobiographical song, Smokestack Lightning. The song was written about Wolf's experience as a kid, where, on the instances he ran away from home, he would reflect on his thoughts by watching the trains roll by. Each verse of the song opens with Wolf howling longingly, imitating a train blowing its whistle. Wolf frustratingly asks a different question in each verse, such as, Why don't you hear me crying? What's the matter with you? And, Where did you stay last night? He also refers to himself as, quote, A poor boy, asking desperately why no one else is hearing his cries. While watching the trains roll by, these were most likely what the young Helen Wolf would think and reflect on. This song was Wolf's way of providing some closure to his dark and disturbed childhood, and finally healing from his rough past. Despite most of the songs on this album being written and recorded in the 1950s, they were still extremely relevant to the 1960s. These songs do not necessarily have the clean and produced sound or attitude that a lot of popular songs in the 1950s had. Instead, these songs were gritty, raw, and loud. It was as if these songs were made to survive the 1960s and still remain relevant to his growing audience. Because of the cultural boom in the decade, his songs would start to get re-released in order to satisfy the blues market. However, by the 1960s, Wolf seemed disinterested in writing about his own experiences from when he was younger. Instead, he focused on a fascinating yet tumultuous songwriting relationship with Willie Dixon from Chess Records. Helen Wolf's friendship with Willie Dixon was one of the most important, yet also one of the most tense songwriting relationships of the 1960s. Dixon described Wolf as, quote, pretty rough to deal with, unquote, primarily because of Wolf's independence and his desire to always be the one in charge. Wolf also did not know how to read at this time, which frustrated Dixon greatly. According to Dixon, he would have to whisper the lyrics in his ear during the recording in order for Wolf to actually remember them. Quote, Sometimes we'd have a good cut all the way down, and right at the end, he'd turn around and say, Oh man, I didn't hear what you said, and mess up the whole damn thing. A lot of times, he whispered so loud, they'd even pick it up on the tape machine. Evil, Spoonful, and Little Red Rooster are songs indicative of their songwriting relationship. 
Evil shows up on the 1959 compilation Moanin' in the Moonlight and was the first Dixon song that Wolf recorded. Just from the title alone, the song is one of the most terrifying recordings that Wolf made. Within the song, Wolf uses two singing voices, one that is clearer and one that is much more gritty and rough. The intention for this was to represent a conversation between a stranger telling the listener about bad signs and the rough voice being, quote, the conjurer who foresees the infidelity and gives a warning. Songs like these perfectly showed how Dixon knew Wolf well enough to truly let his electrifying and threatening persona shine. Dixon stated that this song in particular, quote, worked for Helen Wolf because of his type of voice and the way he pronounced words. There's a particular song for every voice. You just have to get out of the voice what's in it. The songs Spoonful and Little Red Rooster were both on the self-titled Helen Wolf album, which was released in 1962. Spoonful was based on a few songs with a similar title and chorus, with one of these songs written by Dixon and Wolf's mutual friend from the Delta, Charlie Patton. The song is based around jealousy and not getting enough out of life. Wolf belts out that, quote, a spoonful of diamonds and a spoonful of gold does nothing for him, but, quote, just a little spoonful of someone's precious love would satisfy his soul. Similarly, Little Red Rooster was also inspired by a Charlie Patton song. This song is similar to the themes in Evil, in that the narrator is warning the listener of bad times. Both of these songs became extremely popular with British audiences in the 1960s, in particular because of Cream's cover of Spoonful and the Rolling Stones' cover of Little Red Rooster. Although these songs were technically written by Willie Dixon, Helen Wolf still put his full heart, soul, and personality into these songs. Their relationship was tense, but in some ways, the tension added even more emotion and aggressiveness to the songs. Dixon also wrote songs for Muddy Waters and many other blues musicians at the time. Dixon even said that the songs he gave to Wolf were not necessarily written for him, and in some ways, he really treated him as just another collaborator. But there was something about Wolf that kept drawing Dixon to him. Out of all the performers he worked with, Dixon consistently performed with Wolf in the studio and with his live band, which he did not do with any other performer or group at this time. As well, most of Dixon's songs at this time were recorded by Helen Wolf. Wolf's inability to read also added even more of his own personal flair to the songs. The words may have been originally thought up by Dixon, but Wolf truly embodied his own persona when recording them, no matter who originally wrote the song. Much like Sunhouse, Wolf had a shift in some of his songwritings, which directly reflected his attitude during the 1960s. This can be seen from his song Killing Floor, and two tracks that would not see the light of day until much later, titled Commit a Crime and Ain't Going Down That Dirt Road. Killing Floor in particular was derived from Helen Wolf's experiences in Chicago. In this song, Wolf laments the fact that he should have quit a woman a long time ago, and because he has not... He feels as if he is, quote, down on the killing floor. The phrase on the killing floor is a somewhat common phrase in Chicago blues songs, which means to be, quote, in a state of extreme privation from which there is no apparent escape. The term killing floor was slang that referred to the slaughterhouses that were so prominent during the Industrial Revolution in Chicago. Wolf here is saying that he feels the horror and industrial heaviness of a slaughterhouse by remaining in this relationship. The songs Commit a Crime and Ain't Going Down That Dirt Road were never released when they were originally recorded. Commit a Crime was recorded in a session in 1966, and has Wolf declaring in an angry tone that he would commit a crime if he stayed in a relationship with, quote, the evilest woman that he has ever seen. It's very possible that Wolf took inspiration from Dixon's evil that he did years earlier. 
This song may also be the heaviest song that Howlin' Wolf ever recorded, with Wolf's biographers describing the song as, quote, a harsh, hard-rocking, one-chord Delta-style blues that anticipated the angriest sounds of punk, heavy metal, hip-hop, and grunge. The hard-hitting and crushing sound is fueled even further by Wolf's angry voice that booms over the instruments. Both this song and Killing Floor show how much more rage Helen Wolf started to add to his vocal intonation. His earlier songs and the ones with Dixon had a tone of mourning and sorrow, whereas in the middle of the 1960s, Wolf became simply more angry. It is quite possible that the civil rights movement had an impact on Wolf's anger in his songs during the mid-1960s. According to Wolf's biographers Seagrest and Hoffman, he was not necessarily an activist within the movement, but he was aware of it and he cared about it. He and other blues musicians like B.B. King played at various fundraising events in Chicago, for instance. The rage and tense nature of the movement very well could have made Wolf more angry instead of mourning or expressing the sorrow from his early life. And finally, the song Ain't Going Down That Dirt Road is a very important recording in Helen Wolf's discography. Like Commit a Crime, this song would not be released until many years later. It was recorded during a session that Helen Wolf absolutely detested. In the late 1960s, Chess had both Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf re-record some of their older songs with more 1960s instrumentation inspired by psychedelic music. In theory, this could have been one of the best things that Wolf was ever involved with. However, the project was rushed and was released with an album cover that simply said the words, quote, This is Helen Wolf's new album. He doesn't like it. He didn't like his electric guitar at first either, unquote. And the title was absolutely true. Extremely frustrated during this session, Wolf confined himself alone in the studio with an acoustic guitar and recorded the track Ain't Going Down That Dirt Road. This is one of the only recordings of Wolf playing an acoustic guitar that exists, and the closest us listeners will ever get to hear how he sounded during his time in the Delta. The title and lyrics stem from a song by his good friend Charlie Patton called Down the Dirt Road Blues. The song is lonely, hypnotic, and sorrowful. In some ways, this song is Wolf's stance on how much Chess Records was pressuring him to get along with the times. Up until this moment, he had been thriving as a rock star. But in this track, it's as if Wolf is saying goodbye to his stardom and to the 1960s as a whole. From Helen Wolf's discography, one can see the amount of determination and independence that he expressed within not just his music, but also how he worked with other musicians. Wolf truly embraced being a pop star during his life, whether he was in the Delta, Memphis, Chicago, Europe, or the rest of the world. His independence was important to him as an artist. So much so that at one point in the 1960s, Wolf started to take classes in order to better manage his finances and learn basic reading and writing. It is not an exaggeration to state that Helen Wolf had a massive ego. However, to be as big of a celebrity as Helen Wolf, it was almost necessary. His songwriting and emotional expression within his songs shows that he was made to survive being a rock star in the 1960s. cold 
night in 1956, Howlin' Wolf was playing at a nightclub in Chicago named Silvio's. Wolf often played this venue on the weekends with his sworn rival, Muddy Waters. In the audience was a very mysterious man who, at this time, only a few people in Chicago knew who he was. His life was defined by constantly being on the move, but this night he happened to find himself in Chicago watching Wolf and his band play. The man was amazed at Wolf's performance, and declared that up until then he, quote, never heard a thing before like him, his growling voice, moaning and groaning. The mysterious traveler in question was none other than the hardened traveler, elaborate storyteller, and self-proclaimed king of the boogie, John Lee Hooker. <laughs> 